Once upon a time, a six-fingered man once said, if you haven't got your how, then you haven't got anything. I'm your host, Leah. I think I'm Phil. And I'm Steve. Today we're going to look at some really weird remedies and peculiar medicine. So what's up, Doc? (laughs) If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Well now, before we jump into our weird medicine, it's time to take a look at the calendar and see what holidays are coming up. And even before we jump into our holidays, I'd like to play a little music and see if you can tell me what this makes you think of. Okay. The Harlem Globetrotters. Oh, yeah. Yes. Harlem Globetrotters. Because this Thursday, no, sorry, this Friday, January 7th, is Harlem Globetrotter Day. Sweet. Harlem Globetrotter Day uh, marks the the fact that Abe, let's say Saperstein, S-A-P-E-R-S-T-E-I-N, founded the Harlem Globetrotter basketball team way back in 1926. Wow. So they were 96 years old now coming up. Uh, they were initially known as the Savoy Big Five after the famous Savoy Ballroom in Chicago, where they held their first performance. Now, I didn't realize this. The Harlem Globetrotters are actually not from Harlem. <laughs> oh. They're actually from the uh, from the uh, south side of Chicago. The original team members were all African Americans uh, from Chicago's south side. And uh, they never even played in Harlem until like the 60s, like four decades later, once they got started. I wonder why they, they decided on that name then, or when the name changed. And I'm not sure exactly when, when huh. they came upon that name. But they were founded when professional basketball was exclusively for white players only. And so they decided to take basketball to another level, infusing comedy and entertainment. The Harlem Globetrotters have performed in 124 countries around the world on six different continents. I can remember going to see them when I was a kid and what a yep. thrill it was. When they get that magic circle going of passing the ball behind their backs and to each other, it's just, there's nothing else quite like that. Uh, I also remember when I was a kid, there was a Harlem Globetrotters Saturday morning cartoon. Yes, yes I yes. remember that. And yes. it was funny. They would just keep scoring baskets and the scoreboard would explode. You know, that was <laughs> <laughs> And they're still going today. I think they you can still, still, yeah, yeah. they're oh, yeah. still, still touring. And... They are still going today. Absolutely. Still going strong. So happy Harlem Globetrotter Day this Friday, January 7th. Now, Friday, January, I'm sorry, Sunday, January 9th is National Static Electricity Day. <laughs> Yay! Well, that's shocking. <laughs> Sparkles. Static electricity refers to an increased electrical charge present on the surface of an object. This charge either remains on said surface, travels to the ground, gets discharged, or transfers onto another object. When you rub two objects together, they acquire equal and opposite charges, developing attraction between them. Simply put, opposite attracts and the electric force is basically an attraction between opposite charges. So there's nothing quite... I remember being a kid and learning how to rub a balloon on your head and it would stick to the wall for a while. You yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, we, and I think in this area that we're in, is so humid that we don't get static electricity right. until it dries out. And yeah, then, until it dries and out. then and then yeah. and in we the wintertime, sometimes you can get it. Yeah, know, we used areas. to do that uh, as kids. You know, just rub our socks on the carpet and go shock each right. other. That uh-huh. was kind of like a game we played. Like, or if, oh, you, oh, yeah. if yeah. you forget to put one of those little sheets in the dryer, you can experience yeah. some static as yeah. well. <laughs> Then, or just getting out of the car. Now, I've, I've not never been a person that really has done this, but uh, next Friday, January 14th, National Dress Up Your Pet Day. Oh, we need you to send us pictures. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, send us pictures of your pets. It's National Dress Up Your Pet Day on January 14th, and we want you to go all out. And so, if you go twinsies, that would be even better. That, you know, that's that <laughs> could be happening, too. Celebrate by dressing up your furry family member in comfortable pet clothing. Maybe even get matching outfits. Oh, you were way ahead of me, Phil. There it is. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if you want to get crazy, uh, if, if it were any normal day, people would be staring at you and your dog in the street. However, on National Dress Up Your Pet Day... Matching outfits are not only acceptable, but also encouraged. <laughs> now, the angel responsible for starting this holiday is uh, 
is um, a lady named, um, oh, she's a, here she is, she's a, she started in 2009, she's a celebrity pet lifestyle expert and animal <laughs> behaviorist, Colleen Page. Pet whisperer. Um, thank you, Colleen. Uh, it celebrates pets and helps support the pet fashion community. Okay, I'm not really sure <laughs> I, I knew really there was a pet fashion right. community. I didn't either, but anyway, you know. The chance only comes once a year to wow the neighbors and to unleash the inner diva of your favorite pooch. So make sure your dog is dressed for the occasion. We need to get an outfit for Phil. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> well, okay. Um, we hope that everyone listening is doing well and feeling fine. However, from time to time, we all go through times of illness. And we're fortunate, though, to live in an age where medical knowledge is greater than it has ever been. In general, people live longer, healthier lives today than they have at any time in history. I remember when I was a kid, I was walking uh, with my grandmother through a uh, country cemetery, and she pointed out the grave of her little brother who had died when he was only 12 years old. It seems that he had suddenly become ill. And by the time they brought him from their ranch home into the nearby town where there was a doctor, well, he was already dead by the time they got there. And that was in about 1915, and they never really knew what had happened or what had caused it. Well, then a few years after my grandmother told me this, it was actually, in fact, right after my 16th birthday, I became violently ill. This was in 1973. My grandmother happened to come by, and she told my parents that I looked just like her little brother had looked and that they really needed me to get to the doctor quickly. It turns out that I, I had a ruptured appendix, and uh, it was very, very painful. I oh, wow. don't think I've ever been anything any more pain than that in my life. It, uh, uh, it ruptured and, and was, getting, was getting pretty bad. Um, I was very sick. In fact, my family doctor told me later that I was the sickest person that he had ever seen walk into his office. He immediately scheduled me for surgery to remove the appendix. Of course, I recovered, and my grandmother now convinced that her little brother had died of a ruptured appendix, told me how fortunate I was to live when in the time that I did of, of a more modern medication. Right. For sure. Well, as mentioned above, we are fortunate to live in an advanced medical age. This is especially evident when we consider some of the bizarre medical practices that used to take place. Today we're going to explore some of these weird medical procedures. From History.com, we find an interesting article written by Evan Andrews titled, Seven Unusual Ancient Medical Techniques. You will want to hug your doctor and kiss your radiologist after you hear about some of these. <laughs> or your nurse. Or your nurse, that's true. <laughs> okay, well, for thousands of years, medical practitioners clung to the belief that sickness was merely the result of a little, quote, bad blood, unquote. Mm -hmm. For sure. And so bloodletting was a well-known remedy for going as, uh, going as far back as the ancient Egyptians. In fact, the ancient Greek physician Hippocrates, famous for the Hippocratic Oath, which doctors take even today, well, he maintained that the human body was filled with four basic substances or, quote, humors, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood. And these needed to be kept in balance to maintain proper health. Thus, it wasn't uncommon for a patient uh, with a fever or other complaint to be diagnosed with an overabundance of blood. Some doctors, <laughs> some doctors would just whack open a vein to drain off some excess blood. But whack others, open a vein. Yes. I like that. That's technical. <laughs> but others believed that specific locations needed to be tapped to bring out the bad blood, and so leeches were employed for the task. Hey, doc, tap this. <laughs> In fact, if a physician wasn't available, then barbers often did the job. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. In fact, there's a really great book I read not too long ago called The Blood Letter's Daughter. Well, anyway, <laughs> uh, this practice continued well into the 19th century. In fact, it was, it was well in vogue among our nation's founders. According to Encyclopedia.com, on the 13th of December, 1799, at the age of 67, former President George Washington came down with what he thought was an ordinary cold and sore throat. By the next morning, he could hardly speak and was unable to swallow. Martha called for the doctor, and in the meantime, Washington himself asked the plantation overseer to bleed him. This stopped only when, Arthur, when Martha protested that he was taking too much blood. 
Washington's insistence on being bled, though, was typical of the time. Most doctors agreed that bleeding would lessen the excitement of the blood vessels, <laughs> which in turn would reduce pain, induce sleep, and prevent relapse. It definitely induce sleep, it, yes. I'm Let's sure it would. That out. James Cook, the first medical doctor to arrive at Washington's bedside, bled him again, and then later a third time, uh, all, all in the same day. Wow. In the late afternoon, aware that the end was approaching, Washington examined his will and spoke with his uh, secretary about financial matters at Mount Vernon. Then, according to his doctors, he expressed a wish that he might be permitted to die without further interruption, and he did die later that evening. Okay, so... You know, bloodletting, I've known about bloodletting for a long time, and it's hard to imagine that that physicians thought that that did any good. Right. You know, it, that it, it would seem like they would see that the patient's getting weaker right. and, and, and everything. However, then I found out, okay, so I have, uh, I know a couple of people, but specifically my aunt that has a condition called hemochromatosis. Okay. Where they have an excess of iron in their blood, yep. oh, okay. and if left untreated, the ex- extra iron can, you know, cause a lot of damage sure. to to their internal organs and even cause death. So, so the patient that has this is relieved of some blood, like they, okay. they lower still the do it then. Right, yep. right. So yes. they go give blood, and so bloodletting is still a thing. That's not what they call it, right. but. Yeah. Um, so it, so my aunt that struggles with this, I mean, she feels immediately better. Right. So I wonder if there were some, you know, like the, some of the physicians were getting that. There were some connection. And then getting their idea. Right. Yes, and getting their idea from that. But, so the, but this is funny. So during COVID, um, it was difficult for my aunt to go give blood well, because that's considered, blood yeah, it was an elective procedure right. rather right. than a necessary. It was necessary for her, but um, – she was really struggling, and to help out, sort of as a joke and sort of not, I looked up leeches. <laughs> <laughs> and I was surprised. You can buy medicinal leeches right. online. You can buy anything online, but you can right. buy medicinal leeches. Um, we didn't get any, and I don't recommend anybody do that. But I was surprised that you you can actually do that. And and. They're still used today, honestly. Yes. Right. They are still used in some hospitals. They're great at increasing or helping to increase blood flow when limbs are reattached. Um, I know somebody who lost his thumb and they, he lost, like he sawed it off and then it took a long time to find it. So it was really lost. Right. And by the time he got to the hospital and got it reattached, it didn't take. So they had to take it back off. And I wondered, well, just stick a leech on it, yeah. you know, on the end of it because it gets that blood flowing and gets, yeah. gets that vascular, uh, channels and everything. But, but it didn't, it didn't work. So anyway, <laughs> leeches are still used today. And so is bloodletting. Bloodletting still has its place. Well, um, humanity's oldest form of surgery is also one of its most gruesome. As far back as 7,000 years ago, civilizations around the world engaged in trepanation, T-R-E-P-A-N-A-T-I-O-N, trepanation. You need that like you need a hole in the head. Uh, It's the practice of boring (laughs) holes in the skull as a means of curing illnesses. Air conditioning. That's right. It it makes the wind sound nice as it blows past, too. But anyway, for many years. uh, Kind of like a a bottle, like an empty bottle. It's a a skylight. (laughs) Moving along. uh, For many years among modern scholars, a common theory held that it may have been uh, some form of tribal ritual or even as a method for releasing evil spirits believed Mm -hmm. to possess the sick and mentally ill. However, it can be argued that it could have been a more conventional surgery used to treat epilepsy, headaches, abscesses, and blood clots. It may have been an effective approach to head injury and the headaches that often accompany them. Headaches after a head injury often do feel like a pounding and pressure inside the head, and thus the idea that a hole in the skull would relieve them is not necessarily magical or bizarre. It's not that far-fetched. Furthermore, epidural bleeding does sometimes accompany head injury, and in these cases, trephining might have actually reduced intracranial pressure. Treffin skulls have been found around the world, especially in Peru, France, and China. So that's quite a variety of places. And evidence shows that many of the patients survived the surgery. Trepanation is still utilized today to treat rare cases of brain hemorrhaging, 
However, there has also been an emergence of an online culture that encourages <laughs> do-it-yourself trepanation. <laughs> uh, we do not recommend that here at Remnant Yeah, don't School. try that at home. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Actually, gonna, that's not going to end well. <laughs> uh, my mom had an aneurysm burst in her brain Ooh. when I was when I was young, and uh, and they did they removed part of the skull in right. order to allow it to the to hemorrhage and swell without damaging the brain and she lived many 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 years after that i mean they put the they put it back they put the skull back right but, but it let the let the pressure off I yes suppose. yeah okay so so talking about the brain um we can't talk about trepanation without talking about lobotomy oh yes <sighs> So, according to Wikipedia, a Sorry, lobotomy. Did we start this conversation? Yeah. So, a lobotomy was a form of psychosurgery, a neurosurgical treatment of a mental disorder that involves severing connections in the brain's prefrontal, prefrontal cortex. Most of the connections to and from the prefrontal, pre, I'm having a hard time with that word, prefrontal cortex, the anterior part of the frontal lobes of the brain are severed. Right. So basically, lobotomies were performed on people who had mental illnesses that right. made them difficult and hard to control. It was recognized that the procedure was at the expense of the patient's personality and intellect and right. left them emotionally blunted and restricted in their intellectual range. Yeah. And they did it anyway. Yeah. Um, it made them easier to deal with by, quote, reducing the complexity of psychic life. The lobotomy procedure was barbaric and typically was performed by hammering a sharp instrument like an ice pick mm. up under a patient's top eyelid through their eye socket and up into the brain. Yikes. The surgeon would then kind of stir the brain, scrambling the frontal cortex, observing the effect it was having on the awake and unanesthetized patient. Oh, Holy cow. Awful. Then the procedure would Ugh. be repeated on the other side. That sounds and, like how they would torture people in North Korea. Yeah. Right? And, you know, and mental Ugh, health, seriously. mental health asylums were just, it was just yeah. a horrific place. And these things, you know, shock therapy. And right. this was just another part of it. Mm. So Walter Freeman, a doctor who specialized in lobotomization, called the result of the process, quote, and he was, he was he was trying to say it was a good thing because it surgically induced childhood. He described oh. one 29-year-old lobotomized woman as being a, quote, smiling, lazy, and satisfactory patient with a personality of an oyster. Oh, she was really no trouble. So, she just yeah, went in there. Yeah. It oh. just made made the patients oh, much awful. easier to deal with. And it went – there was, there was one doctor um, – specifically that really pushed this and it was it, well walter freeman he right. really pushed it he he just had this like um he, he was famous for this and he would travel from asylum to asylum to asylum and he and they would line up the patients and he would just do right several patients in a day i won't i won't say a hundred but you know, several patients at that location and then travel to the next location. Oh, my goodness. Lobotomies were performed well into the 1950s. Exactly. Before people started realizing how barbaric and cruel they actually were. And the procedure finally waned in popularity and stopped being performed. Um, there was a well-known actress named Frances Farmer who had uh, yeah. had, had the frontal lobotomy um, at, up in, and actually worked at the same hospital many, many years later, Washington State Hospital. Yeah, there was a wide wow. range of um, uh, of results in people. Some people were just incontinent right. afterwards and had to totally be taken care of, and some people managed to have some sort of a life afterwards. But one of the Kennedys was Rose, Rosalind, Rosalind, Rosalind Kennedy mm-hmm. was lobotomized. Oh, that's awful. Of course, I, I, if you missed it when I told the joke before, but there's an old country song. <laughs> I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a front of the bottom of me. There you go. Um, well, anyway, um, my wife and I were remembering the other day how we often, when we were kids, it was, wasn't uncommon to play with mercury. You ever yeah. play with mercury? Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. It's a liquid, but it... Right. It kind of balls yeah, up. Yeah, balls up in a, uh, a sphere. It seemed like a glass thermometer maybe would break, and the mercury would condense into small little balls. Oops. Mm-hmm. Of course, mercury is notorious for its toxic properties, but it was once used as a common elixir and topical medicine. The ancient Persians and Greeks considered it a useful ointment, and a second uh, second century Chinese alchemist prized liquid mercury, or quicksilver as it was called, and red mercury sulfide for their supposed ability to increase lifespan and vitality. I wonder how they figured that. Anyway. Well, they weren't around to argue. Some healers even <laughs> promised 
that by consuming noxious brews containing poisonous mercury, sulfur, and arsenic, their patients would gain eternal life and the ability to walk on water. <laughs> One of the most okay. famous casualties of this diet was the Chinese emperor Chen Shi Huang. Uh, he's famous for being the great unifier of China. In fact, China is named for the emperor Chen. And also for the more than 8,000 terracotta soldiers found in his oh, tomb. Oh, yeah, yeah. Chen supposedly died after ingesting mercury pills designed to make him immortal. I guess it didn't really work out for him too well. Though. Oops. <laughs> okay, so you say, okay, Persians and Greeks, the ancient Persians and Greeks considered it a useful ointment, as well as 1970s housewife, yeah, really? housewives. Really? Yes. Yeah. I mean, don't you remember? Okay, so mercuricum. Mercuricum, okay. Okay, it was a topical antiseptic used to treat minor cuts and scrapes. I had that used. I didn't realize it had mercury in it. So. Yeah, okay, so it was very popular in my childhood. We called it monkey blood because right. it would stain your, your skin red. And uh -huh. my parents never used it. And I wanted them to, because it was like this badge of honor, you know? <laughs> yeah, like you'd fall down, scrape your knee, and get this on it. And it was very glaringly obvious that you had a wound. And um, But parents stopped using it altogether when mercury was found out to be dangerous. Even though it contained so little mercury, yeah. it really wasn't dangerous. Was so monkey blow was never actually banned by the FDA. It was just banned by parents. And then other more effective antiseptics became available. But, yeah, monkey blood, mercuricum. Right. I was so happy for Bactine to come out because <laughs> that stuff would sting. It would really, you know, yes. I remember my mother blowing on your cut as, as, oh. as she was putting it on there. Well, now the ancient Egyptians had a remarkably well-organized medical system, complete with doctors who specialized in healing special ailments. Nevertheless, the cures they prescribed, well, they really were, weren't always up to snuff. Lizard blood, dead mice... <laughs> Mud and moldy bread were all used as topical ointments and dressings, and women were sometimes dosed with horse saliva as a cure for impaired libido. Okay. So if that doesn't get you in the mood, I don't know what will. Well, on it. <laughs> well but, okay, so wait a minute. Let's just, let's just look <laughs> at this for a, a minute. <laughs> horse saliva. Horse okay. saliva. I'm not touching that. <laughs> but the moldy bread, like I could see that. That's penicillin. Yeah, I could I could see that. Don't, and and I know the the. I've seen, I don't even know where I've seen it. I think maybe in old movies or whatever, where they wad up a piece of bread and stick it in a bullet wound <laughs> right. to, to stop so. the bleeding. Anyway, whatever. But but lizard blood, dead mice, it's like yeah. double, double toil and trouble. <laughs> but, you know, recent uh, research has shown that Egypt really did have a pretty um, oh intricate medical care system. You know, even for the pyramid builders, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't necessarily not just gangs of slaves, but they were really prized construction workers, and they had a good medical care system. There's recent uh, evidence showing that you know broken bones were set well and healed and and stuff. It was PPO, um, not right. HMO. Exactly. <laughs> Pharaohs. Uh, well, never mind. But <laughs> preferred Pharaoh. among the Egyptian. Uh, uh, Tricks were, uh, well, some kind of disgusting things, including human and animal dung oh, as a yeah. cure-all remedy for diseases and injuries. According to 1500 B.C.'s uh, Ebers Papyrus, that's pretty amazing that that still exists, doesn't it? Uh, donkey, dog, gazelle, and fly dung were all celebrated for their healing properties and their ability to ward off bad spirits. That's but, okay, spirits wait a minute. spirits are always something you need to take that's care right. of. Fly dung. Fly dung. Yeah. That, that's... Yeah. Pretty rare, I mean, yeah, no, like, to get a How vial of that? that, that's okay. I followed anyway. it around a while. <laughs> fly dung, okay. Well, there were a lot. They had those plagues of flies back then. Oh so yeah, there, there were a lot True. more of them. You know. While these repugnant remedies may have occasionally led to tetanus and other infections, they probably weren't entirely ineffective. Research shows the microflora uh, found in some types of animal dung do contain antibiotic substances, so there may have been. They may have been on to something a little bit anyway. May have caused some other stuff, but hey, yeah, could, you know. It might have helped a little bit. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it in the yeah. yard. Sorry. <laughs> Additionally, from weirdhistorian.com, we find information about a 1764 medical book called Pharmacopoeia Universalis, which includes the following remedies. Raven dung. Suspended around the necks of children is reported to ease their coughs. Because they're trying not, not to, to breathe. Are <laughs> <laughs> nine pieces of rat's dung swallowed 
are accounted by some of our good women as a singular remedy for suppression of the menstrual cycle. Okay. Uh, Nine pieces of rat dung. Okay. And peacock dung, dried and pulverized, have a peculiar virtue for curing vertigo and epilepsy. So that was all from uh, the 1764 medical book. Uh, Let's see, what was that called? Oh, yeah, it was called the Pharmacopoeia Universalis. Oh, wow. Wait, wait, wait. (laughs) So so you could cure vertigo and epilepsy. Right, right. Both at one time. Both at one time. There were a lot lot of weird cures for epilepsy. Two for one. A lot of them. Now, suffering from persistent headaches, muscle cramps, or stomach ulcers, um, once upon a time, your local physician may have prescribed an elixir containing human flesh, bone, or blood. It's called Soylent Green. Uh, So-called corpse medicine was a disturbingly common practice for hundreds of years. The Romans believed that the blood of a fallen gladiator could cure epilepsy. There's epilepsy again. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Shake it off. (laughs) 12th century apothecaries were known for keeping a stock of, quote, mummy powder. A macabre extract made from ground-up mummies located uh, in Egypt. So, you know, you got a little bottle of mummy powder. You want to spread that mm. on that. It'll help you get well. Uh, meanwhile, in 17th century England, King Charles II was known for enjoying a draft of, quote, King's Drops, quote, or unquote, uh, a restorative brew made from crumbled human skull and alcohol. Nice. Uh, it, it, that's the reason King mummies Charles. are so rare, because we <laughs> ate them. That's right. I'm not lying. That's We're just it's spreading around. <laughs> ate them, ground them up, used yeah. them for medication and ointments. Yeah, so, all of those tombs were looted, right. and yeah. These cannibalistic medicines were thought to have magical properties. By consuming the remains of deceased persons, the patient also ingested part of their spirit, leading to increased vitality and well-being. The type of cure prescribed usually corresponded to the type of ailment. Skull was used for migraines and human fat for muscle uh, muscle aches. Well, makes sense. Sure. You know, this for this, that for that. But getting fresh stock could be a gruesome process. In fact, in some cases, the sickly would even attend public executions in hopes of getting a cheap cup of the freshly killed person's blood. Oh, what is he wow. not using anymore? Can you fill this one up? You know, I didn't research this for for this episode, and it just came to my mind. But uh, corpse fat was a thing okay. to yeah. to you know to uh, make lotion and and things like that. Anyway, and and they got it from those that were hanged. Uh, so okay, so speaking of cannibalism, why not? In the name of health. <laughs> Uh, in 16th century China, there was a medicinal remedy called Mellified Man, Ooh. which involved turning a person into what was basically a human mummified candy bar. Mellified uh. Man was then ingested to help alleviate ailments from like broken bones. The mellification process was long and intricate. It started with an elderly person that was reaching the end of their life who had been, who agreed to do this in order to help the future generations. Well, I can understand So that it's akin it, yeah. to, to donating your body to science, except yeah. for the process began before, before the dead. subject was even dead. That's right. So quoting, quoting from an article in allthatsinteresting.com, to begin, the donor would stop eating anything other than honey okay. and would occasionally even bathe in it. Honey, Soon honey. the honey would be, begin to build up inside of the body. And obviously, because an all-honey diet is not sustainable, the person would die. Right. Um, Death by honey. Then after death, their body would be placed in a stone coffin and filled with honey. Then nature would be left to take its course. The coffin would be left closed for up to a century, letting the honey preserve the corpse. Because honey never spoils and has antibacterial properties, it made for a very effective preservative. This would eventually make the corpse a sugary blob, which would then be packaged and sold at markets for all sorts of treatments like bone fractures, wounds, and even internal ailments. I got all this lovely, disgusting Yikes. information at all that's interesting. So, so, did they get to ask, like, you know, did they set it up inside the, you know, the carts and stuff? Like, this is male, this is female, uh, Bob, no. Joe, Sue. I don't know. Well, <laughs> since it took a hundred years, and I want to say, <laughs> right? like, they were considering that they were doing it for their um, posterity, right. like, right. you know. Um, and I don't know if, like, you got. You, the family got certain rights. I don't know, like first dibs on it. I don't know. I it don't was know. a noble idea, but uh, probably didn't uh, really have that much effectiveness. Do you think? Yeah. 
It's a lot of honey, too. It's a yeah. lot of honey. Yeah. So I'm kind of wanting some baklava right now. <laughs> but probably not a bit of honey candy bar, right? Yeah. Well, um, back to the Greeks again. Ancient Greek doctors believed that a woman's womb was a separate creature with a mind of its own. It, it's No not. doubt. Yeah. <laughs> According to the writings of Plato and Hippocrates... When a woman was celibate for an extended time, her uterus, described as a living animal, eager to bear children, could dislodge and glide freely about her body, causing <laughs> suffocation, seizures, and hysteria. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> I do know. I do know. Remember, we talked about it when when um, trains were invented. Oh, yeah. And, and all of that. Women weren't allowed to, to ride, to ride on it because they were afraid their uterus were just going to fly like, away, fly out of their body. Right. Yeah. Just go, go, off, go off on its own. So anyway. Well, to prevent their wounds from. See ya. I'm out of here. <laughs> To prevent their wombs from going on walkabout, ancient women were <laughs> counseled to marry young and bear as many children as possible. For a womb that had already broken free, doctors prescribed therapeutic baths, infusions, and physical massage to try to force it back in position. Okay. They might Get even back. fumigate the patient's head with sulfur and pitch while simultaneously rubbing pleasant-smelling lotions between her thighs. The logic being that the womb would flee from the bad smells and move back into its rightful place near the good smells. That makes perfectly good sense to me. <laughs> Just okay. Oh my goodness! That's impressive. This is yeah. uh, this is a family friend. Right. Well, Get back down we there. It, we kept but, it scientific. But yeah. I do understand where a woman would consider that her womb is trying to kill her. You know, yeah. <laughs> like you you can get to that point exactly. Uh, well, now, uh, for the ancient Babylonians, most illnesses were thought to be the result of demonic forces or punishment by the gods for past misdeeds. Doctors often had uh, had more in common with priests and exorcists than modern physicians, and their cures usually involved some component of magic. For example, if a patient ground their teeth, the healer might suspect that the ghost of a deceased family member was trying to contact them as they slept. According to the ancient uh, necronic, um, sorry, necromantic texts, the doctors would recommend sleeping with a human skull for a week as a way of exercising the spirit. To ensure the disturbing treatment worked, the tooth grinder was also instructed to kiss and lick the skull seven times <laughs> each night. So, okay, I can I, I picture this like them yeah. snuggled up to it like a teddy right. bear. So I've got and, my, and got my skull here, and uh, hey, mom, I forgot Bob. Where's Bob? <laughs> oh wow! And, and speaking of licking, okay, so this is kind of this <laughs> is a tangent, skull. but I love I love bones, and I collect animal bones and animal skulls, and uh, so I'm part of this group on Facebook of uh, skull and and bone identification. And there is okay. So in order, like when you're when you're looking for bones or whatever, and you you don't know what you have is a bone or if it's a rock. It's sometimes it's hard to tell. There's called the lick test. There's the lick test. Yeah, That's right. Oh, That's okay. right. And it's not like licking it like a tootsie roll pop or anything. You know, it's just like sticking <laughs> tell, your tongue. Tell us tongue. about it, Leah. Come on now. <laughs> you're like kind of apprehensive your to do to so. It. Yeah, you know. <laughs> like, oh, but if it, but the thing is, is bone is uh, porous and it's supposed to stick to your tongue. Now I have never done this. Okay, just saying. Oh, okay. I've never she done says I think you need smile. to research this further. <laughs> Report back to us. Um, yeah, I'll get one of my kids to do that. <laughs> hey, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving right along. Okay, this is this is one of the things that, that uh, made me want to do this topic. Um, a, a bazaar. Have you heard of a bazaar? I bet you have, mm. and you just don't remember it. Um, it's called... It, a bazaar, as it's called, shows up in the Harry Potter novels. So okay. Professor Snape explains to his class, and I think this is in the first, I know it's in the first movie, so first book. Um, he explains to his class that a bazaar is a stone from the stomach of a goat that will save a person from most poisons. Oh. Bazaars don't exist just in the wizarding world. They have been around a long time as a way to protect against poisoning. According to HowStuffWorks.com, a bazaar is a lump of hardened, undigested material found in the gastrointestinal tract of a deer, antelope, goats, oxen, llamas. Okay. It forms when layers of calcium and magnesium phosphate build up around a small bit of plant fiber or pebble. 
So kind of like, you know, and then uh, kind of like the thing in the whale pearl. we were talking about yeah, one time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so stomach contraction, squeeze and smooth it into a roughly round shape. A bazaar would be worn as a charm or ground into a powder and consumed as a preventative to being poisoned, or it could be dropped into a drink suspected to contain poison in order yeah. to neutralize it. Um, Did French, it work? Well, here's the deal. Okay. okay. That's a good question. French – now, did any of this stuff work? I don't know. Like for crying uh-huh. out loud, you know. It must have worked something somewhere <laughs> I mean, or they would have kept doing it. Well, just, it stops some people from going crazy. That's now, not so, true. You know, like this stuff doesn't it. work. Yeah. You know, you, you can have medicinal stuff that does not work, snake oil or whatever. People are going to believe in it. Uh, yeah. Okay, be- you're going to uh, get people sure. that believe in it. But oh. French surge- surgeon Ambroise Paris, Paris, I think it's Paris, um, had his doubts about bazaars. In 1575, he performed an experiment to test how effective they were. A servant of his, I think it was a cook, had been evicted of stealing and sentenced to hang. Paris struck a deal with the servant. If he would agree to be poisoned, he would be given the treatment of a bazaar immediately, and if he lived, he could go free. The servant agreed and unfortunately died in horrible Horribly pain. Oh. Yeah, so horrible so Paris had right, his pr- It yeah, wasn't the right pr- bazaar. That's right. <laughs> you had to go get it from a Okay, deer. but here's the thing. Okay, so I'm from the Appalachian area, as we've said. And one of my all-time favorite books is Crawford's Journal. It's a collection of stories and anecdotes from rural people of Kentucky, curated by journalist Byron Crawford. Okay. In it, he talks about the old hand-me-down remedies of mad stones, which seems to be a form of the bizarre uh, tradition. Yeah. Okay, so mad stones typically came from the stomach of a cud-chewing animal and was used uh-huh. in the treatment of rabies. So not poison this time. This is rabies specifically. The treatment consisted of soaking the stone in milk and then applying it to the wound of the person suspected of having contracted rabies. If the so- stone stuck to the wound. Then they had rabies. The stone would be left on the wound wound until it fell off and then soaked in milk again and reapplied to the wound. When the stone would no longer stick, then the rabies had been sucked from the patient. Mm. And the milk in the bowl was said to have turned to usually turn green during this process. Mad stones were prized possessions, considered to be rare and almost sacred items uh, among the Appalachian people because they didn't understand how it worked. They just knew it worked. And... I don't know if anybody has ever tested that. I don't. I can't imagine exactly how that would work, other than, um, other than it's you know porous, and I don't know. I don't wow. know. Huh. Um, but I got my information from HowStuffWorks.com and from Crawford's Journal. Okay. I'd like to thank Bry- Brian Byron Crawford for giving me permission to quote directly from his book. Oh, thank you, Interesting, Byron. Byron. Yeah. We're grateful for that. Yeah. We're grateful for that for sure. Okay, so switching gears a little bit, here's a question for you. Do you sleep with a fan in your room? Yes. Two. Yeah, like all day, every day. I yeah. mean, well, or Frequently, every yeah. night, no matter how cold it is, okay? Yeah, I have to have a fan. And do you sleep with the door closed? No. No? Mm-hmm. I, okay, door closed, so yeah. I have to sleep with the door closed. I need my room as dark as possible, and I need a fan going. Um, so did you know that there's a pervasive belief in South Korea that sleeping with a fan on and the door closed will cause death? Really? It's such a common idea that Korean fans are often made with timers on them so that they will turn off automatically and oh. not stay on through the night and kill you. There are two theories behind this uh, that what might cause, quote, fan death. Some say that the fan may lower the body temperature enough to cause hypothermia. Hmm. Still others say that a fan left on in a, in a closed room can prevent proper breathing, leading to suffocation. No one quite knows where the idea got started, but Korean news sources have helped spread the belief by reporting on alleged fan deaths. Oh. Also, the Korean... Blame it on the media. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, and this is like going on now. Like, it's right. not... This Still. isn't an old thing. Okay. Also, the, the Korea Consumer Protection Board issued a consumer safety alert in 2006 warning that asphyxiation from electric fans and air conditioners was among South Korea's five most common summer accident or injuries according to the data they collected Hmm. the report stated quote if bodies are exposed to electric fans or air conditioners for too long it causes the bodies to lose water and causes hypothermia if directly in contact with air current from a fan this could lead to death from an increase of carbon dioxide saturation concentration 
and a decrease of oxygen concentration. The risks are higher for the elderly and patients with respiratory problems. Hmm. From 2003 to 2005, a total of 20 cases were reported through the CISS involving asphyxiations caused by leaving electric fans and air conditioners on while sleeping. To prevent asphyxiation, timers should be set, wind directions should be rotated, and doors should be left open. You know, I I was in, I went to, had a chance to go to South Korea about eight years ago. And, uh, you know, we're here in the greater cut and shoot area in uh, East Texas where it's pretty humid. But it was, it's nothing like the humidity in Korea. It's very, very, very humid. I can't imagine. Like, I would think that more people would die of. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. Overheating. Yeah. Well, it's not, it, it is hot there in the daytime. But it's just extremely humid. I don't know if that has any play in this wow. or not. So, but that's a so, really interesting article, and so they're very. Uh, it's a very intelligent culture, and so there there must be something to it. You would think uh, for them to follow yeah. up on that. I don't know, but but yeah, they are convinced that if you leave a fan on and close the door overnight, that you have a serious yeah. risk of death. Right. Wow. And I got I got a lot of my information from Wikipedia. See, very good. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. All right, it's time for the oddity today. Uh, wait a second, I gotta get something here. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, here we go. Oh man, those are some awesome. Oh my go. goodness. Those are amazing. Those are beautiful. Yeah, there we go. Um, They're even polished. Yeah. And now everyone's trying to figure out. Okay. Let me want to take a picture of this, I'm not sure. <laughs> These are some pretty amazing shoes. Yeah, they are. Uh, for our oddity today, we are going to focus on a fashion accessory, uh, accessory uh, specifically the high-heeled shoe. Did you know that high heels were originally designed exclusively for men? Um, uh, okay. That's true, exclusively for men. The practice of wearing high heels goes all the way back to the 10th century Persia, which is now Iraq and Iran. Uh, it seems that Persian soldiers hit upon the idea that wearing heel boots and shoes gave them greater stability in battle when they stood up in the stirrups of their horses to shoot arrows from a bow. Okay. The heels wedged uh, wedged itself tightly to the stirrups, so it gave them that's you know rather okay. than slipping I can see out, that. It'd be right there. Uh, by the 17th century, one-inch heels were the norm for Persian riders, both on and off their horses, because owning horses was a symbol of wealth. Well, then heeled shoes also came to signify money and power as well. So the heel served as a practical as well as a symbolic purpose in Persian society. Well, around that time, or in the 1600s, the Persian Shah, Abbas I, had, he had the largest cavalry in the world. And he was also keen to forge links with rulers in Western Europe to help him defeat his great enemy, the Ottoman Empire, those Turks. Uh, So in 1599, he sent a diplomatic delegation, including several dozen heeled horsemen, to call in the courts of Russia, Germany, and Spain. Well, you can guess what happened. When the Europeans saw them, they instantly became interested in all things Persian, especially those heeled shoes. Um, Persian-style shoes were enthusiastically adopted by aristocrats who sought to give their appearance a virile, masculine edge that it suddenly seemed only heeled shoes could supply. <laughs> As the wearing of heels filtered into the lower ranks of society, the aristocracy was res- uh, responded by dramatically increasing the height of their shoes, and the high heel was born. Now, obviously, high-heeled shoes have no practical utility at all, Wait, they make your calves look really good. Well, that is true. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's kind of the point. Uh, if you really want to show off your high status, you do it through impracticality. Uh, it was not at all uncommon for the upper classes to show off their privileged station by wearing nonsense, impractical, luxurious clothing. So the high heel was a perfect fit for them. Perhaps history's most notable male high heel uh, wearer was King Louis Fourteenth of France. Now, poor Louis, he was only five feet four inches tall, but he padded that height an additional four inches with a wow. pair of clunky red heels. <laughs> that took some getting used to. Yeah, Louis uh, Louis was uh, so fond of red that he declared that only members of his court were allowed to wear shoes with that particular color. So if you ever look at a picture of French aristocracy, you can see who was in 
with Louis uh, Court because they were the only ones allowed to wear red heels and paintings. You'll still see them. Huh. Wow. Um, however, the fad carried across the English Channel because there's also a portrait of Charles II of England. Didn't we mention him earlier? Was he the one that had the king's drops or something? Anyway, no, that was a different Charles, I think. Uh, anyway, there's a picture of Charles II of uh, England's coronation in 1661 featuring him, featuring him wearing a pair of enormous red French-style heels. Although he was over six feet tall to begin with, so he really, <laughs> like so he really stood out. So well, now, and things know, like this, you know, it starts out, you know, one or two inches, and then you know, yeah, you yeah. just get more and more and more, more outrageous. And more. Yeah, well, I remember the disco era, so I remember how that went. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those shoes that you just showed. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that was. We know when those are from. Exactly. <laughs> Around the year 1630, women in Europe began to borrow fashion ideas from men. They were seen wearing masculine hats, <laughs> cutting their hair shorter, and adding epaulets to their dresses. In a further effort to make their outfits more masculine, women began wearing high-heeled shoes. By the mid-1700s, women's heels had become more slender and curvaceous. At the same time, men's fashion shifted toward more practical clothing. In England, aristocrats began to wear simplified clothes that were linked to their work managing country estates. It was the beginning of what has been called the Great Male Renunciation, which would see men abandon wearing jewelry, bright colors, and ostentatious fabrics in favor of dark, more sober, and practical looks. Along with this, men began rejecting the high heel, which had tremendous popularity with women. Yeah, no more dandies. Exactly. In the American <laughs> West, the heel, the cowboy boot, became mm -hmm. popular for similar practical reasons as had been discovered by those Persian soldiers. And this practicality now has carried over into the non-horseback riding population as a popular fashion for men of all walks. Occasionally heeled platform shoes for men do flash around again. And yes, I had some back in the 70s. And, and, uh, and apparently today. Well, I, I, you know, at my school we have, uh, at times you can d dress up in certain decades for certain occasions. And so, yeah, I, I purchased a 70s outfit, including the... Uh, High platform shoes that I that I've got out here on the table. <laughs> they're, <right now>. they're well <laughs> polished. They're <Yes>. beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, the fashion has not endured among men. Oh, uh, that's a great oddity. Nice. Speaking of uh, cowboy boots, uh, I see an awful lot of people uh, on a recent trip to Nashville wearing cowboy boots that I'm sure have never been anywhere near a horse. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Or cattle or <laughs> cattle or anything else. Well, you know, you kind of get that here, too. You can kind of yeah, tell yeah. those that, that have the... Well, my uncle would have called them drugstore cowboys. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and now for something really smashing. Okay, so now back to our topic. Here's a couple um, items that that are interesting in, in our medicinal topic. Plague stones are found all across England, usually in the form of hollowed-out stones or, or boulders. They're relics of the medieval plagues. It's been known for a long time that vinegar has antifungal properties. So in order to get supplies and, and like food and medicine and stuff to plague vis victims, plague stones were set out and filled with vinegar so that money could be exchanged safely. So so like if you were taking food to a family that, that had the plague, you would set the food oh. over to the side or whatever where they could get it and, and back up and get away. And then they would place the money inside that vinegar in that So that, that would kill dish. any of the plague then. That's right. So then that could be collected by those that didn't have the plague. Oh, okay. And they're still, they're still all over Europe. You know, that's a that. downwind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that just came up during the pandemic recently because uh, there were a lot of places that quit handling cash. Right. Uh, that's oh, right. Yeah. Went straight because to cards. It's so, straight to cards. It's so filthy. I mean, you know, yeah. you think about, okay, so uh, tangent again. Right. Um, Welcome I'm to a the junk show. food junkie <laughs> and I love to go through through drive throughs and everything. And I keep thinking, you know, quit, quit this single use plastic. Let's have our cups and you right, fill my right, cup right. and all of that. And everybody's like, you can't do that. Yeah. For the, the health department won't allow, but, exactly. but they allow you to handle money, right? Right next and, to the food, so, and, the, and, and that's the workers, like one of the filthiest things that you can have. Absolutely, right? Count out your change and everything. So anyway, okay, all right, <laughs> back on. on topic. So um, okay, we talked about we talked about uh, iron being you know too much iron, but iron deficiency is actually a real problem yep. across the world, right. and this was especially true in Cambodia, where iron deficiency is the most widespread nutritional disorder 
in the country. In 2008, health workers attempted to combat this by distributing iron discs to be placed in pots during cooking where the iron would leach out into the food and would unchange the the taste or anything. It's like us uh, cooking in a cast iron pot right. or whatever. You do get some of that iron. Um, Cambodian housewives, however, they weren't having it. <laughs> they just didn't believe that this was going to help them. Right. It didn't make any sense to them. So they just didn't do it. And uh, and the program was doomed to fail. But in talking with the village elders, it was discovered that a certain fish species was deemed a symbol of good luck, okay. health, and happiness in local fol- folklore. So the health workers then decided to rebrand the iron disc and form it into the shape of a fish. Right. They called it a lucky iron fish. They, uh, these were received much more okay. positively by the community. And so, you know, and you would put it in your pot and you would boil, you know, water and sure. you'd make rice and all of that kind of stuff. And it led to the immediate increases in uh, blood iron levels among the villagers. Oh, Anemia was virtually eliminated. Good idea. Who came up with that? Yeah. Nice. That was a yeah. good thought. So, uh, so you know, that's fascinating that they, they did that. You know, they came up with a solution, and yeah. it's a perfect solution. Let's do it. And it just didn't go over. And so instead of abandoning it, they, just they, re- they, they figured just it out. It. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. Okay, so so this is a, a treatment. This is a weird treatment, I have to mention. <laughs> it's all about, okay, and this is going on. This is a modern treatment, okay? Okay. Um, it's well, all if you about, can't fix it, duck it. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about the removal of warts. Ooh, this yeah. was actually recommended to me by my kid's pediatrician, and we did it. It involves putting a small piece of duct tape on a wart. As the kid goes through their days playing, the tape eventually comes off and painlessly takes a little bit of the wart with it. How gross is that? Um, And then you apply the duct tape again and keep repeating the process until the entire wart is gone. It doesn't actually cure warts, which are caused by a virus. Their body eventually has to build up an immunity to the virus and the warts go, go away. But it is an effective way of removing a wart that's in a bothersome place. Interesting. You remove it a little you know, bit at a time with and, duct tape. And, you know, and then your brother, you know, rips it off and right. it speads up that process. Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who was that comedian out of Canada that used to fix everything with duct tape? You remember that guy? I, I don't know. Red, Red Green. Red Green. Sh- Red, yeah, Green. Yeah, Red, Red Green. Green. Oh, Red Green. <laughs> Red Green. That was a hilarious show. Well, we, <laughs> hit, we go through a lot of duct tape at our house. Yeah. Like, we, we use it. I think my, my son has the duct tape. Uh, and he's like 24. He'll be 25 this year. Right. He has a duct tape wallet, you know. <laughs> I've anyway. seen a duct tape suit. Uh, yeah. Prom dress. Yeah. yeah I've seen uh-huh. that too. Okay. So another trendy medical remedy is colloidal silver. Have you heard of that? Colloidal silver. I yeah. It hasn't been. Mean. It's not trendy right now, but it has been uh, in like in the 80s. Um, a colloidal substance consists of microscopic particles suspended in a liquid so colloidal silver contains actual silver particles almost nano size even though the fda in 1999 warned that ingesting colloidal silver isn't safe or effective for treating any disease or condition many companies continue to produce it and market it as a dietary supplement because there was a market for it people wanted it people buy it i guess so recently it has experienced a revival in popularity with some claiming it can replace uh, antibiotics or other medical therapies to treat bacterial viral and fungal infections and there's even a small number of people who claim it can treat illnesses such as Lyme disease, tuberculosis, and even HIV or AIDS. Mm. Oh, wow. But here's oh. the thing about taking colloidal silver. The silver builds up in your body over time, and it can cause what's called ageria, I okay. think is how it's pronounced. Yeah. Um, that's when your skin, eyes, and internal organs, sometimes your nails and gums as well, turn a blue-gray color, mm. especially in areas of the body exposed to sunlight, and it's irreversible. The change Ooh. is permanent. Oh, wow. So there's this this case of this guy, Paul Carrison, uh, who Ooh. consumed colloidal silver for over 10 years, and so famously his skin turned very blue. Mm. He had he had white hair and a beard. He looked like Papa Smurf. Oh, wow. <laughs> And, and we'll have nice. a picture. We'll have a picture of him. Nice. Uh, he he died uh, a few years ago uh, of a heart attack, not not, not due to this. But yeah, yeah, he apparently. I mean, he cont- and he continued taking colloidal silver to his death. Like he, it was a, a regiment that he believed in. I guess. Right. Sometimes wow. when people and are convinced that it's helping them, they just keep on trucking. They will keep on taking. Yeah, it, and especially he was, with things like Lyme disease that are. You know, not really any known cure to be, to begin with. So. And I'm not, I, I can't, I don't remember exactly why he started taking it, but uh, right. but he was a believer and he was very, 
very blue. Oh. He wasn't just slightly blue. Hmm. Um, and I got my information from Wikipedia and the Department of Health and Human Services website. This next topic may be just a little bit controversial. Okay, okay, I'm ready. Many people today shy away from mainstream me- medicine and instead opt for more natural remedies. Right. There are many reasons behind this that we don't have time to get into today, but many cases a natural remedy can be just as good or even better than what a pharmacological company could produce. Okay. But one practice that like I just don't understand people partaking in is homeopathy. Homeopathy. Okay. Oh, hold on a minute. It's homeopathy. Sorry. Homeopathy. homeopathy. Yeah. I think that people make it, uh, maybe in an effort to take a more natural approach to their health, they accept homeopathy without really knowing what it's about, right. thinking that it's just like a natural alternative medicine. Well, it's, it's, it sounds good. But, you do it um, at home, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah homeopathy was. It, it really has nothing to do with home. Oh, okay. It just isn't. It's. It's just not mainstream medicine. It was conceived in 1796 by a German physician Samuel Hahnemannus, I think maybe okay. is how you pronounce it, and is based on the belief that the body can cure itself. Its practitioners, called homeopaths, believe that a substance can cause symptoms of a disease in healthy people, can cure similar symptoms in sick people. This doctrine is called Similia similibus uh, curantur, okay. or like cures like. I see. Something that in large doses creates the symptoms of a disease will, in small doses, treat it. I see. This okay. is similar to the theory behind vaccines, but with a with very important differences. Okay. Okay, so for example, red onion makes your eyes water, so it is used in homeopathic remedies for allergies. Homeopathic preparations, though, or remedies, are made using homeopathic dilution. So let's get into that. And and it's very precise and and complicated and everything. But we're gonna we're gonna make it really simple. The dilutions are measured using the capital letter C. A very simplified explanation is that the that one C is obtained by mixing one part of the tincture of an active ingredient, which is usually like a plant. Okay. okay. So it's a plant with nine parts of ethanol in a, in a vial and then vigorously shaking the solution. And like I said, there's a very specific ethanol. number wow. of, well, ethanol or water or something okay. to dilute it. All right. And it's, it's shaken a certain number of times. It's, it's hit against the table a certain lean number of times. The it's, right, lean to the left. Or the yeah. Right. Yeah. It's kind of okay. like that. So the result is a one one hundredth dilution of the plant. Tincture, be, tincture starting out as a one tenth dilution of the plant itself. So it's so really so diluted. You, then. So yes. one, C, well, 1C is 100, 1, 100th, okay? So you've okay. got one part active ingredient to 100 right. part of the, uh, yeah. the whatever you're one diluting it with, right? right? Okay. The 2C is obtained by mixing one part of the 1C with 99 parts of ethanol in a, in a new vial and shaking that solution. Okay. Recurrently, the 3C is obtained by mixing one part of the 2C with 99 parts of ethanol, ethanol in a new vial and shaking it. Okay. Hahnemann advocated 30, okay, 30C dilutions for most purposes. At a dilution of just 12C, it is determined by scientists that there is unlikely to be even one molecule of the active ingredient in an entire liter of the dilution. Wow. Imagine if our bodies were that reactive to ingredients. Like that would that yeah. would cure you. So so instead of taking an aspirin, yeah. you put an aspirin, cut it into tenths, right. put mm-hmm. that into, you know, nine parts of, of right. water and shake that up and then put that into to 100 parts of water and then put that into 100 parts of water and then put that into 30 times. So, yeah, you know, you're ending up with nothing. Yes. Or, yeah. Yes. So uh, homeopathy or homeopathy, it just makes no sense whatsoever. But and, and it's been proven by scientists time and time and time again to be ineffective in curing any ailment. Yet homeopathic remedies are still being sold in stores like you can go to Walgreens. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and people still continue to turn to them as a as an alternative treatment. So yeah. and I I just I don't get it. But I well and I guess I do get it because you you do want sometimes you want a a, a natural yeah you know something but and then and at but, some point yeah too far is not when you're well, going to have when you're not going to have anything in the vial to actually the, to help exactly. You. And, and I think just people just times. don't realize it. I think people yeah. just just see the word 
homeopathy or homeopathy and yeah. and think natural and right, yeah good. and so anyway i got my info from wikipedia and the department of health and human services website very good well um for a mental floss article called 30 strange medical treatments from history <laughs> we learned not like not like any of the others we discussed right. before were weird right. yeah we're, we're going for 30 strange 30 ones. strange ones we're probably gonna get to all 30 of them but we'll hit a few of them that were more interesting uh, we learned of a rare medical book called Bald's Leech Book. Uh, going back to the <laughs> leeches again. It is the medical textbook from around the 10th century. And there's only one copy known to exist, and it's located in the British Library in London, which, by the way, is a fascinating place to go. And it's free. You can go into the British Library without having to pay anything. And really a, a lot of amazing displays there. And but, so if you have an ailment, you know, go look at this book. Yeah, yeah, go right. look it up. Go look up Bald's. This could just be fun. Several interesting bits from Bald's includes putting burnt periwinkle flower and honey in the eyes to cure cataracts. Okay. Or to treat, treat swollen eyes, take a live crab, cut its eyes out, <laughs> throw the crab back in the water, and then ply the eyes on the neck of the man who hath need. <laughs> okay. Okay. And don't, don't eat the crab. Don't eat the crab. No, just take its eyes out and rub them on your neck. And to treat swelling of any kind, take the tooth out of a live fox and rub it on the swollen body part. So, you know, uh, oh, your thumb's swollen there. Let's get a fox over here and uh, knock one And don't tooth kill out. the fox. Like, no, pull that pull tooth. tooth. We're just going to release it back to the wild. Yeah. How do you do that? I'm not sure. I'm thinking that person that's pulling that tooth is going to need some help, too. Maybe at that time, fox were a lot more common around the campfire, but I'm not sure. Anyway. Another text noted in the article was Dr. Thomas Jefferson Ritter's Mother's Remedies. Over 1,000 tried-and-true tested uh, remedies from mothers in the United States and Canada, published in 1910. Okay. It contains many remedies that may have not been such a great idea after all, like the one for hay fever, which called for spraying a, quote, 4% solution of cocaine up the nose. I'm thinking that would work. That would yeah, right. yeah, they're right. not going to have any problems with hay fever anymore. <laughs> right? Cocaine was really they're just widely high as a kite. Used. Right. And <laughs> cocaine then, was used for a lot. Of it was things. really yes. a normal uh, back then to, uh, yeah. for cocaine to be prescribed for in uh, for ingestion, fatigue, eye pain, and hemorrhoids. And I, there's another image uh, right yeah. there. Okay, I think that might burn a little. Uh, <laughs> in, imagine <laughs> applying cocaine or <laughs> well, anyway. Doctor Ritter has an interesting fix for chapped hands. Put sour cream in a cloth, bury it outside overnight, then earth, unearth it uh, the next morning and apply the sour cream the next day. Evidently, putting it in the ground overnight uh, you know, stimulates the healing qualities. Mm. In the meantime, you're stuck with your chapped hands for probably digging a hole in the ground. Right. Them even worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. To heal ringworm, Mother's Remedies recommends a paste made of gunpowder and vinegar be applied to the infection. Well, we know vinegar does have, yeah, it does yeah. have some feeling problems. I'm not sure about the gunpowder. You know, some of these remedies, though, you know, you. my grandmother used to give us whiskey. <laughs> you know, whiskey for things. And I, I you know, some of these Two things work, stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, and sure. so whenever my kids have a sore throat or something like that, I give them hot tea, honey, lemon, and a little and a bit shot. of whiskey. Yeah, yeah, I do. And yeah. when I say kids, okay, they're not four yeah. or five. Right. You know, they're they're older kids. They're but. Well, and now also from the Mental Floss article, uh, between the mid-18s and early 1900s, 25 cents uh, could buy you a bottle of Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup for your baby. It was advertised as a solution for colic, teething, diarrhea, and any pain. And it worked. Because it contained a whole Ooh. lot of morphine. Oh. <laughs> wow. I, was expect, I was expecting, you know, back to the whiskey or bourbon. But okay. Uh, morphine. Morphine. Yeah. morphine. We just, just went straight to the great stuff. Go right? to the hard stuff. That's right. This this kid. Loves it. He keeps wanting more. Uh. <laughs> Whew. Give me another one. Okay. All right. So did you guys know that in emergencies, coconut water can be used as a replacement for blood plasma? No, I did not know that. That's interesting. Okay. That's, this is a, and I'm, I'm using finger quotes here, a factoid. Factoid. Big, big that's been quotes. shared on Facebook, particularly in the South Africa region. Yeah. Um, but, but I do know people that have say, said that to me. So it's, it's a thing that's known, except it's, a, it's really not true. 
Um, there are stories that coconut water was reportedly giving, given intravenously to people during World War II when regular IV saline solution was in short supply. Hmm. There is no basis for the stories, and many doctors have come forward to say that they would never do this, no, not in an emergency or anything else. So coconut water has been embraced as a great solution to treating dehydration, though. Okay. Yeah. Um, so drink it. Don't inject it. Right. Okay. I got that information from NPR.org and AfricaCheck.org. That's what it is. Let it go through your body naturally. Don't inject it. Yeah, don't inject it. Um, and then the one last tidbit. Uh, you've seen old movies or cartoons showing a raw steak oh, being yeah. put yeah. on a black guy, right? A black guy, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So in researching for this episode, I wondered what that was all about. So um, – as a kid, I thought there was something magical about steak, right? You well, know? There is something magical about I mean, steak. Okay, so it's pretty <laughs> it's delicious. It's got a magic to it. I wouldn't be surprised if it could help what else you did. But, <laughs> right. Okay, so so looking it up, I tur- it turns out that the reason it was used was just because it presumably came from a fridge or freezer and it was cold. It oh, was a so, cold compress. Yeah, it's like peas for you know other no, issues. Well, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking that – Okay, so, well, here's the deal. I think maybe ice was too precious because it came in blocks. You didn't just, oh, yeah, you know, right. get it out of yeah, an yeah. ice dispenser. And uh, and chipping it off would take too long. And, and and today we have much better alternatives than using a slab of meat. And when I'm right. cooking, like, I'm very well aware of the the bacteria of raw meat. So right. I really can't imagine sticking that <laughs> on my eye. eye but whatever. So, um, so if you absolutely feel the need to use... Food is a cold compress, then again, yeah, like you said, invest in a bag of frozen peas. Frozen yeah. peas. A whole lot so, easier. Yeah. And and here's the deal. Okay, so when my kids were little, you, know, you can put ice in a bag and, and all of that, yeah, but it right. melts, and then the kids open the bag and all that. We had a, a bag of frozen peas. And it forms fairly, it, it forms well to whatever. Okay, so, and I took a marker, and I would write, because this is not to be eaten. Not to, okay? do not <laughs> you eat don't want peas. You don't want it to thaw against some kid's knee or whatever, and then hey, be frozen the again, to... and, and then eat it, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, frozen peas works great, yeah, and the kids don't well. seem to want to open these little green vegetables. <laughs> so, peas. yeah, it's peas. So, there you Very go. Uh, and I got, I got the information on the steak <laughs> from mentalfloss.com. We love mental floss. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Well, it's time for that trivia challenge. Once again, you know how this works. Like and follow our Facebook page, at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. The first person to do all that will be the winner. Woo-hoo! And will be mentioned in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. So and you, what's our question today, Leah? Well, and I might send you a pair of cool socks. All right. So, okay, so t- um, Harbin Gold came up with this. And, um, oh, geez. It, it's an easy question, though. What completely disgusting medical treatment that has been used since the Renaissance times can today be used to help some diabetic patients? Ooh. That's an interesting question. I just saw the answer. That's why why I went, ooh. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. Check out our Facebook and Instagram pages at Remnant Stew Podcast. And if you have any ideas you would like to hear us cover in a future episode, you can email suggestions to us at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode, along with commentary by Philip Sengfeld, who also produces our audio. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Special thanks to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gould. Well, now please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head on over to Apple Music and leave us a review. We love seeing those reviews. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, general practitioner, alchemist, and that witch doctor down the street. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and And always always stay stay curious. curious.